Welcome to the Thurfield Chapel Sermon Podcast. Well, good morning. Let me extend my welcome to you. Uh, if you don't know me already, my name's Paul. I serve as part of the leadership team here as one of the elders and pastor at Thurfield Chapel. And um, uh, just before we, we look at a passage, I thought it's probably worth just saying a brief thing on Bible translation. Uh, it may be the case following along with a certain translation this morning, and you found there were extra verses uh, in the passage that we were looking at. And um, the reason for that is the way the Bible translation works. So what we have uh, is a translation of the Greek and Hebrew, and that's been handed down to us through copies uh, over the centuries. We're not working from one copy. We're working from thousands of documents, uh, and scholars from that translate then uh, into the English The King James Bible, uh, which was a very big Bible, very influential in the English language, when that was translated, there was a smaller number of texts that were available at that point in time. So all these thousands of of texts, they're grouped and kind of to different families. Uh, And the King James Bible, the New King James Bible, they translate from a particular family of documents. Uh, Since then, scholars have found more documents. People sometimes debate over kind of which is the best document to go from. Uh, the consensus among biblical scholars is, is using this wide uh, range uh, of documents. And then trying to figure out, okay, where are some of these changes, some of the differences? Because there are differences between some of these thousands of manuscripts. No Christian doctrine is changed or is altered by that. Most of the time it may be things with slightly different things in numbers. Because you know if you're writing and you're copying things down by hand, occasionally you, know, you, make, you make an error. Maybe your eyes jump from one line to the next. And so scholars sift through these thousands of documents and are able to see where these slight changes have come. Sometimes it's thought that maybe notes that scribes made by the, the margins, that they ended up getting copied into the main document. So there's all these different sort of reasons and it's a bit of a science as to will someone have added something at this point or is it likely someone's taken something away? What's the oldest document? So that's all to say that with a certain group of texts and that's what the King James and the New King James translate from, you may find that there are some extra verses that aren't in other translations like the NIV, uh, ESV, NLT, NASB, uh, all those other major translations. This wasn't something that was explained to me at all until I was in my 20s. So just throwing it out there, if that's confused you, just put it to one side, forget about it, it's not relevant for what we're, we're looking at this morning. But if that's a question that you have, you know, why is, why is this verse here? Or you may see sometimes in the margins, it might say some documents say this, uh, that's, that's why. We're just going to put that to one side. Any further questions about that, come and speak to me later. Uh, But let's pray uh, as we have a look uh, at this passage uh, in Luke. Father, we thank you uh, that your word is truth. uh, And that it has been preserved over these these centuries, these millennia. Lord, that this truth, the good news uh, about Lord Jesus Christ. Father, we thank you that you choose to work Lord, through us as well, that you could have just delivered maybe a text from from heaven, 
and, and dropped it down at our feet, but you have chosen to work through uh, us, people who bear your image. Uh, and so we pray now as we meditate uh, on the scripture, Lord, that you would be working in and you would be working through us, uh, that we would see, that we would know, that we would delight ourselves uh, more in the glory of Christ. Amen. So, it was um, 15th of March, 2003. That was the day that I was going to ask Tanya out. Wasn't the most uh, straightforward of days. In that afternoon or, or later that morning, I decided to call Orchard Cottage, which is the house where Tanya's living, because I want to test the waters first. Uh, and I call up and get through to one of her flatmates, which is great because I want to speak to one of her friends. I'm like, hi, Joe. Um, I'm thinking of asking Tanya out, but I, I don't want to make it kind of awkward with our friendship. So I just want to see whether you think that might be a wise idea or not. Hang on, I'll just check and put the phone down. <laughs> not really the response I was expecting. And Joe's misunderstood. She thinks I'm asking whether Tanya's in like physically in the house, and whether she's free to just come out and meet up. So next thing I know, Tanya's on the phone. I'm like, oh, hi, Tan. Um, I think Joe's got a bit confused here. Uh, yes, I'm still going to that uh, event later this evening. Is, is Jenny there by any chance? And so Jenny, another flatmate's on the phone. Hi, Jenny. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm thinking of maybe asking Tanya out. I don't want to make it awkward with our, our friendship, so... Kind of like, what do you think? Jenny replies with, well, I, I can't really say, but I don't think she'd be disappointed if you ask. <laughs> now, like, as a guy, uh, and, uh, at that time, I'm like, what on earth does this mean? <laughs> I don't want to know whether she's like, going to appreciate it. I want to know whether she's going to say yes or not. And after various twists and turns, it's not until about 11 o'clock that evening uh, that I finally get a chance to speak to Tanya uh, alone. But I made the whole thing a lot more complicated, really, than it, it needed to be. And while this kind of cloak and dagger, I wanted to, to really know that Tanya would say yes before I even asked. And the reason for that was fear of rejection, that she might say no. We don't like rejection, and we can do crazy things to avoid rejection. That Sometimes fear of rejection can even lead us to push people away, to actively push people away. Because if we push them away from us, we're the ones who are in control. And that distance is because we've pushed them away, and not because they've rejected us. We don't like rejection. And that fear of rejection can cause us to respond in all manner of wrong ways. Now, at this point in Luke's gospel, Jesus has already told his disciples he's going to be rejected. So Luke, 20, uh, Luke 9, 22, he said, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law. We don't like rejection. Jesus said he's going to be rejected. And if we 
want to follow Jesus wherever he goes, like the man in our passage today said, then that means facing rejection. That we too will face rejection. How are we to respond when we face rejection for the sake of Christ? So we're back in Luke's gospel. Uh, if you've got your gospel journals with you, great. Um, if, if not, you know, follow along in your Bibles. That will, that will really help. Um, if we need to get some more gospel journals in, we can order some of those. I think we may be down to, to one copy. So we're back in Luke's gospel. And uh, Luke, you may recall, is written to demonstrate how Jesus is the fulfillment of all that God has planned, of all that God has promised. And from the very beginning, his purpose has been that the blessing of his presence extends over the whole earth. And we come to this new section now uh, in Luke's gospel. This period where Jesus journeys to Jerusalem and this section begins. Uh, have a look at verse 51. As the time approached for him to be taken up to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. And so Jesus' uh, face is set. He's not going to be deterred from this path. He's heading towards Jerusalem to fulfill God's plan. This path that is going to lead to rejection. But it's not a path that ultimately ends in rejection. It's a path that ultimately ends in the ultimate reception. And Jesus is ascension above all. All things, the time that is taken for him to be taken up into heavens, a qualifier um, of that understanding. It's literally just to be taken up. But we see in the context of the gospel, it's not just taken up on a cross, but ultimately taken up in his ascension, where he rules, where he reigns above all things. But to walk this path, to follow Christ, means to face rejection. And yet rejection doesn't get the final say. Following Christ, it involves experiencing rejection, but it's not about rejection. So then how are we to respond? And how do we cope in those moments when we will experience rejection for the sake of Christ? Two things that we're going to look at this morning from this passage. Two things that will help us, and that's having a Christ-like response and a Christ-like perspective. So uh, how are we to respond when the message of Christ is rejected? Now, when people reject us, when people mock us as they mock and as they reject Jesus, how should we respond? Well, actually, Jesus has already explained this earlier on in Luke chapter 9. If you flip back to Luke 9 verse 5, Jesus says, if people do not welcome you, speaking to the 12 disciples here that he's about to send off, leave their town, shake the dust off your feet as a testimony against them. Now, this is what people would have done uh, in Jesus' day, Jewish people would have done when they left pagan territory. They would shake the dust uh, off their sandals. Now, Jesus is saying to his disciples, when you go, and when you go to these Jewish towns and they, they reject you, do that same thing. This is a highly symbolic action. It is to say to these people who are rejecting Jesus, basically, you're in the same category as, as the pagans. Those people who you would shake the dust off your feet, 
you're in that same category that to reject Jesus is to reject life. But now at this point, the disciples come to new territory. In verse 52, they're not going to one of their Jewish towns. They find themselves in a Samaritan village. And there's conflict between Jews and Samaritans. That, that conflict is somewhat similar to the historic conflict in Ireland between Catholic and Protestants. And one of the points of tension was where should God be worshipped? So the Samaritans said God is to be worshipped here on our territory in this mount called Mount Gerizim. And the Jewish people said, no, God has chosen Jerusalem. And that's clear in the scriptures. He chose David. He chose Jerusalem. That's the place where the temple is to be built. And so in verse 53, we read, as Jesus comes to this Samaritan village, they did not welcome him because he was heading for Jerusalem. Jesus didn't fit into their worldview. And so they reject him. And though Jesus has previously said to his disciples, when they reject you, when they reject this message, you leave peaceably, but with this clear warning, James and John, they come to Jesus and they say, Lord, do you want us to call down fire from heaven and destroy them? Now, some centuries before, uh, the prophet Elijah did just that as the king had sent out these armies to basically destroy Elijah. Elijah calls down fire from heaven. And you can read of that account in 2 Kings chapter 1. It's most likely what James and John have in the back of their mind. Now they may well have thought, well, this is how Elijah responded when he came under attack, so why don't we? And yet their attitude is more like a besieging army. Like you surrender to us or we're just going to destroy you. It's more like a besieging army, their attitude, than of kingdom messengers. And so in verse 55, Jesus turned and he rebuked them. Then he and his disciples went to another village. And following Jesus means that we don't respond to rejection with retaliation. Because we're not fighting to survive. And we're not fighting a culture war. Because the battle's already won. Christ is already victorious. There's no uncertainty about where things are heading. The final outcome is secure. And when Jesus sent out the 12, when he sends out the 72, and we're going to come to that next week, he doesn't send them out to fight this culture war. He sends them out to proclaim the good news of the kingdom. That we're not to seek to destroy that which is old and is passing away anyway. But to proclaim and to declare and to demonstrate the good news of God's coming kingdom. And so yes, we're to speak out on issues. But we're not to beat people into submission. We don't lash out in retaliation. Rather, we respond to curse with blessing. And even if we're going to be accused of being narrow-minded, it should be an undeniable fact that we are broad-hearted. 
So what, what's this look like for us? You know, it's unlikely we're going to be praying for fire to come down from heaven to consume people, and yet we can so easily seek to consume people with our words. Now, whether that's face-to-face, whether that's via social media. Now, roasting people is quite the trend at the moment. That's dueling with your words rather than with swords. And it's intended, in many ways, to kind of be a bit of banter between friends, but it so easily spills into other areas of life. Cripple your opponent with your words. Now, show that you can hold your own. By putting them down. Attack them first. And at times, as Christians, we can try and justify some of the harsh things we say by pointing to the prophets. No, the prophets said some harsh things. I'm just being prophetic. Really? James and John probably could have said the same thing. Jesus, don't be so harsh. I mean, come on, Elijah called down fire from heaven. And yet Jesus rebukes them. And he rebukes us if our heart is driven by retaliation. If we're responding to to that rejection, whether it's a personal rejection, whether it's a felt cultural rejection, if we just respond to that with retaliation. Yes, we're to expose lies. Though we live in the world, we don't wage war as the world does. We don't give as good as we get. Because we give much better than that. And rather than trying to show now that we can hold our own here, now we show how we hold others up. And that's where the, the impact comes. Uh, in his book, Being the Bad Guys, uh, Stephen McAlpine uh, speaks about his experience. Miss that. Uh, it speaks about his uh, experience in the police force. Uh, and this is what he says about him and his Christian colleague. People knew we were Christians. They mocked it, especially the hard as nails officers. And there was gossip, anger, drunkenness, and adultery in the office as people under pressure let off steam. Then one day we got a taste of the last day. One of the loud, brassy party girls of the crowd, while someone was dissing their spouse, pointed to me and my friends and said loudly, how come these two are the only ones who speak about their wives as if they love them? And every mouth was silenced. See, we don't fight fire with fire. We've got something much better to offer. Don't respond to rejection with retaliation. Jesus is heading to Jerusalem, this place where he will be rejected, but his mission isn't to destroy, but to save. Not to destroy, but to save. Humanity is already on the path of destruction. It's turning from God, the author and the sustainer of life. And so those who who mock, who reject Christ, who will mock us as we follow Christ, don't think of them as this, this advancing, this opposing army with a competing kingdom. That's not the reality of the situation. They're more like people who are shipwrecked. 
and who mock the rescue boats because in drinking seawater, they've become delusional. These aren't people that we should be seeking to cause pain to. These are, these are people that we should pity. And if we are rejected for the sake of following Christ, we are not the ones who are fighting to survive. Think of what we considered last week in, in Psalm 121. We're not fighting to survive, and therefore we can afford to be kind to others. And that's why in 2 Peter 2, Paul then says this, Opponents must be gently instructed in the hope that God will grant them repentance, leading them to a knowledge of the truth, and that they will come to their senses and escape from the trap of the devil who has taken them captive to do his will. We don't respond to rejection with retaliation. And yet rejection is still painful. It's not an easy thing when we experience rejection. How are we to cope then in those times? Are we going to consider this Christ-like perspective on discipleship? Are we going to come to that passage in Leviticus in a moment? Have a look at verse 57 then with me in Luke 9. As they were walking along the road, a man said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. Now remember, this comes in the context of Jesus setting his face, heading out resolutely for Jerusalem where he's, he's already told his people he is going to be rejected. He's going to be rejected. He's going to be killed. Yes, he's going to be raised from the dead. But the disciples haven't grasped any of this. So as this man says to Jesus, I will follow you wherever you go, Jesus explains to him what this means in verse 58. Foxes have dens, birds have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. He's not going to be embraced, not going to be welcomed. He's going to face rejection and following Jesus wherever he goes means facing rejection too. We need to follow with our eyes open. If you go against the tide, you are going to be battered by the sea. So we shouldn't be surprised when we face rejection. Jesus is, is helping this man see what it means to follow with open eyes. And now Jesus has just said, okay, following me means you will face rejection. Now with that message ringing in everyone's ears, he says, verse 59, to another man, follow me. But he replied, Lord, uh, let me go first and bury my father. Jesus said to him, let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Still another said, I will follow you, Lord, but first let me go and say goodbye to my family. Jesus replied, no one who puts a hand to the plow and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. Now, these words of Jesus maybe seem somewhat unkind. But it's always worth us remembering, Jesus doesn't speak unkind words. Sometimes they're hard to accept, but they're never unkind. Always for our good. And we're going to dig a bit deeper into that now. 
So that context, Jesus has just said, following him, this way of the cross, as we've entitled this part of our series, going the way of the cross means experiencing rejection. It means experiencing pain. It's not a very attractive invite initially, is it? But then in these two interactions that Jesus has with these people, we're to have this Christ-like perspective and see that the way of the cross actually holds a greater privilege, a greater honor, and a greater glory than any other way. So first, there's this greater honor. Verse 59, Jesus has said to this man, follow me. The man's replied, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. And burying a close relative was a very important task. There was probably no higher calling in the Old Testament than being a priest. A priest who served, who ministered in the temple, this place where heaven and earth touched. And yet, as we read in Leviticus 21, so there up on the screen, that a priest could leave their post, their position, to bury a close relative. Now, unless you were the anointed high priest, so there's that exception there in verse 10, unless you were the anointed high priest, then burying a close relative was the, the role, really, that trumped all other roles. So as a priest, this high privilege ministering in the temple of God, and yet bearing a close relative would trump that role. Jesus has just said to the people, follow me is going to be hard. He calls this man to follow him, and the man responds by saying, I've got this very important task that I need to do first. Now, it's somewhat unlikely that this man's father has just died. If his dad's just died, why is he on the road hanging out with Jesus and the disciples? If he needs to bury him now, why is he there? Now, of course, we, we might argue maybe he was on his way and he just walked past them and happened to overhear something and then Jesus turned to him and said, come and follow me. It seems a bit unlikely. It's not likely that his father necessarily has just died. And at that time, burial happened on the day of death. So the body would be wrapped, it would be placed in a tomb. And then 12 months later, a second burial, a reburial, would occur. So when the flesh had decomposed, the bones would be taken and they would be put in a special box called an ossuary. Uh, and that was a second burial. And here's a, a picture of one now. This is um, the Caiaphas ossuary. It was uncovered just over 30 years ago, believed to be the bone box of Caiaphas, who was the high priest at the time of Jesus. Uh, and so the bones were placed uh, in this box, and, and family bones would get put together. And so this may well be what this man is referring to when he talks about burying his father. This very important task, that period of mourning, uh, would last for a year. But Jesus responds to this man by saying, let the dead bury their own dead. But you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Now that could mean let the spiritually dead bury their own dead. Let, let those who uh, are ignoring, rejecting me, let them deal with this. Or it might be Jesus is saying, if it's that important, let the dead corpses in the tomb deal with it. 
Either way, Jesus is saying the matter will take care of itself. And it's a shocking statement. Not shocking because Jesus is saying don't show any care or concern for your family. Because actually, Jesus and Paul will both rebuke those who neglect caring for their family in the name of religious duty. Now, this is a shocking statement because Jesus says this culturally important, this honorable role is nothing. It's nothing compared to following him. Right after this, Jesus is going to send out 72 to go out and proclaim the kingdom. He'll send them out and say, say to them, go heal the sick and proclaim the good news of the kingdom. So as Jesus has said to this man, follow me, and the man says, well, I've got this very important job of, of dealing with death. Jesus says, that's nothing. I've got a very important job about life. You go, you proclaim the kingdom. Following Jesus means facing rejection. And hearing that, this man responds by saying, I've got this very important task I must complete first, this high calling. And Jesus says, there is no higher calling than following me. There is no higher calling. It's not an easy path, but there's no higher calling than following Jesus. Now, a few months back, we screened here uh, the king's coronation. And one of the moments in that coronation that was a talking point across the country was this, Penny Morden carrying the coronation sword. It's a sword that weighs 3.6 kilograms. It's like three and a half bags of sugar uh, with a sheath on. And I think it was carried like that for about 50 minutes. There's a point where the sword was taken out. Penny Morden is holding that sword up, 3.6 kilograms, for almost an hour. She said in an interview she was having to take some painkillers. It's not an easy task. Not a comfortable task. But Penny Morden wouldn't have changed it for the world. This great, this high honor of being part of the king's procession. And that honor and that prestige of that role, it overshadowed the hardship. We have a higher call. We have a higher privilege. Not walking in the procession of King Charles, but in the procession of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. There is a greater honor and privilege in following Christ that overshadows any of the suffering, any of the hardship. There's a greater honor and there's a greater glory. In verse 61, Another man says to Jesus, or actually we just told still another. Maybe it isn't a man. I don't know, I'd have a look at the Greek. Still another said, I will follow you, Lord, but first let me go and say goodbye to my family. Jesus replied, no one who puts a hand to the plow and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. I mean, it seems like a reasonable request, doesn't it? First, let me go and just say goodbye to my family. I can at least let them know that I'm not coming home this evening. Otherwise, they'll be wondering what's happened to me. 
And yet Jesus' response here in verse 62 suggests something more is going on. Have you ever been on the motorway behind a car and you see it sort of swerving or, or moving over into the hard shoulder and then suddenly moves back or it's slowing down all of a sudden and you overtake it and as you check your mirrors, as you look back, you see they're on their phone. Now, you can't drive in a straight line and focus on your phone. That's why they say don't drive and be using your phone. Now, Jesus takes the first century equivalent here that you can't plow in a straight line and look back. If you do that, you're going to be swerving all over the place. No one who puts a hand to the plow and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. And I think what Jesus is warning against here, this looking back, is a looking back, a goodbye, saying goodbye, which focuses on, which majors on what is lost rather than what is gained. Now, before Christmas, I was with some friends, uh, and they were pastors. Um, they were talking about some of the, the challenges and the hardships of pastoral ministry. And they said, somewhat jokingly, but with quite a lot of seriousness, who would choose to be a pastor? Given all this, who would choose to be a pastor? And I said, well, Jesus, for a start. And Jesus, who for the joy that was set before him, Hebrews 12, endured the cross, scorning its shame. And I wasn't seeking to just you know, shut down my friend. It, it is good that in the last decade or so, there's been this recognition that there are challenges uh, in ministry, that it's not an easy thing, uh, and we need to talk about it, and we need to recognize it. We need to speak honestly about it. But there's a danger that we end up kind of becoming introspective and a sort of woe is me. And following Jesus, it becomes more about being a pain than being a privilege. And not just as pastors, but for us as Christians, when we face difficulty, when we face hardship, now we do need to be honest about it. It's not putting on a sort of fake exterior. But there are times where we can go into this victim, this suffering mentality. As though, oh, life would be better if I just wasn't a Christian. And we end up doing this backward look. This sort of longing for the way that things perhaps used to be. And so instead of plowing straight, Jesus says here, become unfit for the kingdom. This wrong view of Christ. And then this wrong presentation of Christ. So it's not that we pretend that everything's fine. We don't talk about hardship. We don't talk about difficulty. We put on these fake smiles and like, you know, everything's great. Praise the Lord. There is an honesty, and the Psalms teach us that we need to have this honesty during trials. But if we major on what is lost, if it becomes a pity, pity party, on what is lost rather than what is gained, then we present this false view, this false view to ourselves, to others, that we look back longingly rather than looking forward with anticipation. And what we end up doing is presenting, not the gospel as good news, but as bad news, as miserable news. 
And Jesus makes it clear in verse 58, following him, it isn't easy. And yet it is glorious. And it is better than anything else the world could offer. So he's saying, don't look back. Because your hope's not found back there. That's not better. Look forwards, look ahead. Going the way of the cross. Following Jesus, joining this procession. It means experiencing rejection. But the way of the cross, it doesn't end with the cross. The way of the cross ends with glory. And because Jesus goes on ahead, he resolutely sets out for Jerusalem, that place where he would be rejected, where he's going to be lifted up, but not simply lifted up on a cross. That's not where it ends. He's lifted up from the grave, and he's lifted up in the ascension to rule and to reign over all. And because Jesus has gone on ahead, he has made the way. He's gone on ahead, dying for sins, raising to give us life. Exalted to rule and to reign and to pour out the gift of the Spirit on the church so that we can follow. Not in our own strength, but in the strength that He gives. He's gone ahead before. He comes alongside. He's opened that way. And so following Jesus, it's that great privilege joining in that procession. That means experiencing rejection, but it's not about rejection. It doesn't end in rejection. It ends with the ultimate reception. Because Jesus has opened that way that in him we share not only in his sufferings, but also in his glory. Now, Penny Morden considered it a great privilege to be part of that king's procession, carrying that sword. But at the end of it, she went home. I imagine probably quite a nice home. She didn't go and continue with the king to his palace and enjoy and share in his privilege. But that's what happens to us in Christ as we follow him. We, we share in his glory. It's not a glory of our own. It's not a glory that we could attain to. We share in his glory. The way of the cross doesn't end with a cross. Following Christ and experiencing rejection isn't ultimately about rejection, but the ultimate reception, one that we just cannot even comprehend the greatness and the glory of. Let's pray. Romans 8, we read that if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs with God and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in his sufferings, that we might also share in his glory. For I consider, Paul says, that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. Father, we thank you for your great grace and kindness to us. Though that you have purposed that in Christ, 
that we should share in such a glory, that we should have such a privilege of following Christ. And and in those times where we do face rejection, whether individually, whether corporately as a group, Lord, in those times where it's hard, where it's difficult, where it is painful, we pray that you would lift our eyes above our present circumstances, that we wouldn't be those who are, are looking back as though there was an easier, a better way, but that we would set our, our gaze on Christ, that the author, the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, Lord, that we would walk not out of our own strength, but in the strength that you provide. Lord, that you would give us a vision of your great purpose, Lord, in Christ. Lord, then that you would empower us by your Spirit. Lord, that we may walk that way of the cross. That we may live these lives that are worthy of the gospel that you in your grace, Lord, have called us to. And even in times of trial, Lord, that we may have great joy as we share in that privilege of Christ's life. Amen. Thank you for listening. If you have any questions or would like prayer relating to anything you've just heard, then please do get in touch. We would love to hear from you. You can do so by emailing us using hello at thurfieldchapel.org or fill in the contact form on our website or send us a message on social media. Thank you again. Please do join us next week online or in Thurfield itself at one of our services or events. We would be delighted to welcome you. God bless.